No, you Oh, there we go. Hi, this is Katie Tierney Fort. Uh, we're doing the first Diabionic podcast Woo! tonight. Finally, Yay! finally, I finally have my act together to get this done. We're finally doing it. You finally. The button's going. Um, yeah, so myself and my dear friend Kevin here, um, who's helping me to put this podcast together and keep me talking and moving through all the things um, and answering all of your questions that people have sent to me, which has yes. been awesome. Thank you, yes. Um, but first off, we figure if we're starting this off, we probably should give you some introduction to me, because either some of you know me, some of you don't, some of you have been along for part of the ride and know part of the story. Um, some of you might know all of the story, but we want to kind of clue everybody in on here and what the goal is going to be with this podcast. Um, so once again, I am Katie Tierney Fort. I am 34 years old. Oh, you're so old. I know, right? Um, and I've been a type 1 diabetic for 30 years. That's a long time. Yeah, do the math. That's a long freaking time. Like in diabetic years, that's ancient like you're not even considered old anymore you're you're ancient because it's you're been God. yeah right <laughs> oh yeah we'll look at it like that um so yeah I was diagnosed at age four um as my mother said because she knew what was happening um she recognized the signs and symptoms it ran in her side of the family um, she said, you looked like a Vietnamese concentration camp child. Cause I dropped down to 28 pounds. All of my hair broke off and it was very obvious that something was wrong. Um, so of course off we went to the hospital where lo and behold, you know, you have a blood sugar that doesn't even register on any glucometer. Like we're talking four digits, which is insanely high. Um, and I was still up and functioning. Thank God. And I was diagnosed. So, from there, I grew up in a small, little, itty-bitty... We're talking small. Small, rural town in Missouri, where everybody knew me, everybody knew my parents, everybody knows everybody, so everybody knew I was diabetic. Everybody. Everybody, right? And you got to keep in mind, when I was diagnosed, it was what, 1987? 87. I wasn't even... Well, I was born in 87. You were born, just... Anywho, yeah, Kevin's a little younger. Um, but I had an amazing support system. So my parents were insanely supportive. Family members were insanely supportive on both sides. Um, lots of um, family friends that really rallied around and made sure I was successful as I grew up. So we're talking about back in the day when sugar-free candy didn't really exist. It was actually just starting to come out. Um, Because I remember, I think I was in preschool the first time a family friend actually brought me a handmade sugar-free chocolate peanut butter cup out of St. Louis. Um, And that was a really big deal because that was the first people were ever seeing of sugar-free candy. Um, That wasn't just those god-awful, horrible, hard little disc and... um, that really weren't that great and made you sick if you had too many of them. Um, But at the same time, um, it was also a point in time when you were type 1 diabetic that we weren't allowed to eat whatever we want. We didn't eat sugar. Um, My pediatric endocrinologist literally at that time wouldn't even let us drink Diet Coke. So life got really hardcore with that diagnosis for me and for my family. My parents kind of took the opinion of, if this is the schedule we have to live on now, 
then the whole family's going to live on that schedule, not just me, mm. which really is probably the only way we were successful mm. at it, right? So when I start talking about that schedule, what I'm talking about is three shots a day, one for breakfast, one for dinner, one before bedtime, that this insulin peaked when it wanted to, didn't peak when it didn't want to, you know, lows were a little more common. It was not as regimented as what it is nowadays with kids that are on pumps and the ability to fine tune things down to 0 0.05 units. Um, so you had to eat at certain times and there wasn't a lot of leeway with that because that insulin was going to peak. It was already in your body. And once it peaked, you better have food in your system or else you're going to be passed out on the floor. That's it. Point blank. We always have fruit snacks for Katie. Yeah. Right. Like there's always, I even carry soda just in case, just in case, right? Just in case. Cause and there's you some... can't have Coke zero by the way. That doesn't help. No, Kevin had to learn the hard way that Coke zero does not fix low blood sugar. No, I it doesn't. I it doesn't. I get a point it doesn't. Trying. Yeah, you did. You totally tried. Um, but life was way more regimented than, than what I think a lot of diabetics have to deal with nowadays, or especially type 1 diabetics. Let me be more specific there. Break it down. So um, I did all the normal things every other kid did. I went trick-or-treating. There were no exceptions made. Yes, we did have some family friends that might have something, you know, that was sugar-free or not candy for me to be there. But other than that, I came, still came home with a sack full of candy like every other kid. The only difference was I never got to eat mine. Unless I decided to sneak a couple pieces, which that happened. But pretty much my, my brother made out like a bandit every year because whatever I got, he was getting to go through everything and keep it all. So, and you know what? That never bothered me. That was never a big deal. And I think for a lot of people nowadays, that's like, this huge astonishing fact because I think nowadays we really make it out like kids are missing something if they don't have that experience and it doesn't go that way. But I never felt like that. I still don't. You know, 30 years later, I don't feel like I missed out on anything because I went and did the same thing every other kid did. Right. Um, but, you know, I went on, I was involved in a lot of activities. I danced, I played ball, I was in band, I did color guard, and I did all of those things that every other kid did. I just had to take shots and I knew when I had to eat and you know so there were differences then compared to what my other friends were doing but once again I'd grown up with the same kids and going to school with the same people literally since preschool so by the time you get all the way through junior high up into high school you know there's a lot of type 1 diabetics that start to rebel and they kind of say screw this and they just don't want to take care of themselves anymore and I never really went through that phase. I am grateful for that. I don't feel like I have missed out on any of that. I still feel like I understand the days where people with type 1 diabetes or anybody else with chronic illness says, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't want to deal with this today. I want it to go away when there's actually no chance it's going away. Um, but I never, I never rebelled in that way. I didn't even rebel in that way in college. Um, and don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying I was some straight-laced, perfect kid. I mean, okay, I was an honor student. I went on to college. But you know what? I still did stupid things like going out drinking with friends and eating junk food and, you know, having fun wherever. Because I just did everything everybody else did, right? There wasn't an exception made for that. It's just I did things my own way. But once again, I never really saw it as being a difference. Yeah. So, um, 
college life. College. Oh, my lord. Um, well, actually, I'm going to backtrack for a second. We're going to backtrack to growing up in a small little town, being the only kid in my school in the whole district at that time that was a type 1 diabetic. A couple more came later on. That's a whole other topic. Um, but talking about, like, I went and did sleepovers at friends' houses for years because that's something we did back then. Now we don't do it nowadays because we're afraid somebody's going to, you know, die. die, torture your child, you know, whatever. But back then we did all the time, like every Friday, Saturday night, right? And, you know, we started out with if I stayed the night at a friend's house, my mom or dad came over and did shots. If it was first thing in the morning for breakfast, that was that. If it was at dinner time, bedtime, whatever, that's what we did. And then I went on that I actually had a couple of friends' families who knew how to do my injections. So as I got a little older, because um, by the time I was in third grade, I could do my own blood sugars um, completely independently by myself. Wasn't huge on doing my injections myself without having mom or dad around to help. But I could do it. I could do it. Um, and then also, you know, this cool thing called an auto-injector came out that you just loaded your syringe into and you pressed a button and it gave it to you. Sweet technology. Yeah, kids nowadays, like, haven't even heard of that. <laughs> they have no idea. Like, that's so old now that it's not... Obsolete. Yeah, it's totally obsolete. But, once again, that just goes back to having a really strong support system that I had other friends' parents who were like, yeah, we can do this. It's not a big deal to make sure I still got to go do everything and keep up with everybody else. Um, but yeah, then like I said, we got through high school and I went to college. Survived. I survived. Yeah, I totally made it. And then I went to college at the University of Missouri in uh, Columbia, Missouri. You. And I actually went to work for my pediatric endocrinologist right off the bat. Sweet game. I'm pretty sure my mom just wanted me to move in with the man to make sure I was okay my freshman year of college. As I explained to her, that wasn't going to happen. Um, he did decide to employ me, or better yet, his lab decided to employ me in the Diabetes Diagnostic Lab, which is the lab that helps to, first off, um, set standards for A1C testing and insulin testing, as well as all these wonderful diabetes studies. And I eventually got partnered up with our research nurse, um, with the EDIC study, which has been one of the longest ongoing type 1 diabetic research studies that's, I want to say, I'm trying to remember now, it's been a while, Susan would shoot me for this, but it uh, started in the early 90s following the same group of type 1 diabetics, and it's still following them through late childhood into early adulthood and adulthood, and, um, you know, doing things even like testing family members and their children just to see you know, what's the correlation? Who gets type 1 diabetes? Is there any precursors? Is there, you know, just more and more knowledge. Um, and it was a really cool experience because um, I got a really good taste at the medical world before I went into the medical world. Um, so started off there um, and thought I wanted to be a physical therapist, thought maybe I wanted to be a respiratory therapist, and guess what? I became a nurse. Whoop, whoop. Pretty sure I said. Pretty sure I said that was the last thing on earth I'd ever want to do. Weird. That's totally what I ended up doing. Didn't take me long to figure that out. But anywho, um, I lived in the dorms my freshman year. It was all good and wonderful, no big deal. But yet, yeah, dorm life was not 
what I wanted or anybody wanted because they used to be gross. They, they still are gross. There's but no, not anymore because my dorm has now been totally torn down and there's like a Taj Mahal looks like some royal hotel that's been built in its place that they're calling a dorm room. I don't get it, but whatever. Oh, I had minimum jail cell requirements. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, that's, so, they must have been upgraded since I went to college because it was straight up prison rules. Yeah, I, I literally had minimum jail cell requirements is what I had. Drop the soap, you just keep walking. Yeah, you just don't even, yeah. Nope, don't even do So, it. I, um. And the smell. Oh, everybody smells so bad. Right. Deal with that. I don't know. I guess, Anywho, like, it's it's because the buildings house? were disgusting. The buildings were disgusting. Like concrete walls. Yeah, college kids were disgusting. Like just, that's just how that was. But anywho, I anywho, digress. I digress. So I'm working at the diabetes diagnostic lab. I have a friend of mine who I work with there um, that grew up in another small little Missouri town about 20, 25 minutes away from Columbia, and met friends of hers from back home. You know. Met all kinds of new people, um, which is always really cool and the great thing about college, right? But I kind of bring up this moment because it was right before I started nursing school. I think it was right, it was right before I found out I was even accepted into nursing school because that is some competitive... That, yeah. That was some real deal competitive stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I am trying to keep this as family friendly as possible, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's no guarantees. So just everybody, you're it's listening at your own warning. It's my fault. Kevin so, is out Kevin, Kevin's a bad influence. But anywho, um, I, it was about this time and I, all I remember was it was like literally right before I got accepted to nursing school, um, that I met one of my dearest, um, best friends who happened to also have a chronic illness. He had cystic fibrosis. And the funny thing about our friendship, and for as close as what we were, was we did not start off close. We actually started off hating each other. And really for no good reason. That's how it all... No, no good reason. None at all. Other than I knew he had something, and he knew I knew what he had, and he thought he knew what I had, and for some reason we hated it. I mean, there was like palpable hate between the two of us and we've never even said hi to each other <laughs> the stare down began i mean i mean it the stare down is like an understatement i'm pretty sure we had to have two or three people in between the two of us or else like it was going down oh it was going i mean it was ugly oh jesus because both of us were strong personalities neither one of us could keep our mouth shut and God help it if two drunk friends were trying to stand in between you to keep the peace it just Jesus, didn't work well I love, man, I love. and it, it, you know, it took another friend of ours literally mediating. Like, what is your problem? I don't even know. Just, like, literally. And the funny thing was, he's a big, huge guy, and he was real scared of the two of us not liking each other. Like, that we were, like, that we just hated each other this much, Why right? Is this hate so strong? Yeah, he's like, I don't get this. You two have never even talked to each other. And literally in one look, we, like, I mean, it was bad. So, anywho. We move past We that. We get past this. Um, and it took one of our dear friends going in between the two of us one night for quite some time going, what is wrong with you? Going, but that he doesn't hate you. She doesn't hate you. Why did she, nobody's ever said anything. You've never talked to each but other. What's the deal? Hate each other. That's the thing. But you guys, yeah. It, yeah. And I, and I'm telling you, it's the underlying chronic illness of you have something. I have something. We both know it. We don't want to say it. We don't really want to call the other one out, but we're trying to call the other one out. Um, cause just cause all of us have a chronic illness, if it's a different one, 
you're you're still feeling them out. There's yeah. still this. It's it's totally different. It's like, but is yours worse than mine? Is yours better than mine? What do you have? How can we just compete in this way? It, yeah, it's competition and similarity all at the same time. It gets real ugly. But anywho, we finally actually talked to each other. That's it was a miracle. It was amazing. Yeah, it, was, it was me. And the what was funny, the first word? No, I can't even remember. That's the funny hi? thing. Was it yo, was it sup? It was. Th- there was an edge to it. I guarantee. And, and there was some sass. To it, that there hello. was probably some sass that turned into literally borderline smack. Like just. That's. Impressive. I'm sure profanity was involved. I'm sure you know. I'm anywho, sure it was a good show. But. We managed to sit down, and what ended up happening was the two of us sitting in two chairs on a friend of ours' back porch and talking for hours. And we were literally sizing each other up. It was like a boxing match. He wouldn't say what he had. I wouldn't say what I had. All of our friends knew what we had, but not really. I mean, they were clueless. Let's be honest. They couldn't. At that point in time, you know, people had known Johnny for their whole entire lives. He'd had his diagnosis his whole entire life and they still couldn't say cystic fibrosis so um thank you things changed very quickly okay very very quickly between us because that sense of we're more alike than we are different we share more of the same opinions on things than not um we're bigger allies you know, stronger together than apart. Yeah. Um, and we were very close because of this. Johnny was also one of those people that even though we had two different diseases, you know, I have one I know I'm living with for the rest of my life and it can limit my lifespan if I choose to let it limit my lifespan if I don't take care of myself. Right. Right. Whereas, uh, Johnny, who was older than me, um, had had his disease longer. He was diagnosed a little after a year. I want to say 18 months was when he was diagnosed. And he was older than I was, but he also knew that his illness was going to eventually take his life. Yes. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's how it works with cystic fibrosis. We don't have a cure for them. Just like we don't for diabetes or anything else yet. Yet being the key word. Yes. But, um... We shared a lot of the same views when we looked at younger kids that had the same diagnosis and how doctors treated them and how things had changed since we were diagnosed and we were growing up and when we were in elementary school. And we had these conversations frequently. These conversations would especially come up when, once again, I wasn't one that had repeated hospitalizations. I actually, after my initial diagnosis at age four, I've never been hospitalized for DKA. Um, I had one hospitalization a year after I was diagnosed for um, hypoglycemia that they couldn't quite figure out and insulin wasn't all working, so I ended up having to be hospitalized again just to get things adjusted Um, because back in the day, that's what they did with you. They didn't make you do all that at home like they do now. Um, But uh, John went into the hospital Every once in a while. I mean, sometimes he made it months, sometimes he made it weeks, sometimes, you know, just depended. Obviously, winters were worse, but um, that would lead to a lot of debating because he wasn't the most agreeable CF ever, right? And and he shouldn't be. None of us should be. I mean, 
I, and don't get me wrong, um, I am a nurse practitioner by trade. Um, I am a healthcare provider, and at the same time, I'm going to tell you right now, when you live in chronic illness world, we don't always jump and do the first thing our providers tell us to do. There is debate. <laughs> There's, There's contemplation. Sure. Sometimes it's just personal sabotage. But you sit down and debate things, and John would sit down and debate of, is it really that bad? Do I go now? Can I wait till tomorrow? Well, what if I do this? What if I do that? What if I, you know, we'd have those debates. And then lo and behold, John would end up in the hospital admitted. So he would be admitted and, you know, I'll never forget because at that time I was still working for the diabetes diagnostic lab. Um, he was hospitalized in the hospital that I worked for because that's where our, both of our specialists were. Um, we had both been raised in the Mizzou healthcare system and, uh, I, he had called me one day and said, hey, when you're done with work, will you stop by my room? we got to talk about something. I'm like, all right, sure, what are we talking about? Literally what we were talking about was whether or not he should do a round of steroids. Now, there's some people that are going to think, who gives a shit? Who cares? It's a round of steroids. If you're an asthmatic, you've had to do some steroids before yeah, for exacerbation time. If you're a CFer, you've probably done a whole lot of steroids for the same thing. Um... And steroids can have a lot of great uses. John never liked taking them. He actually avoided them most of his life, which was always amazing, especially when you looked at his CF and the degree that he had it. and Because um, he was pretty classic textbook CFer. And I remember I came downstairs and he's like, here's the debate. Okay, what's the debate? They want me to do prednisone. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you're sitting here in a hospital bed. You haven't been able to breathe well in two weeks. I knew he hadn't, breathed, he hadn't been breathing well in two weeks. Not at his baseline. Um, and when you're sitting there talking to a friend who's barrel-chested from their disease, that they don't breathe well ever at baseline, and you're thinking, well, why wouldn't you just do it? And I'm going, well, I would do it. And he's like, well, why? And I'm like, isn't this going to help you breathe? Isn't that what... Isn't that what is going to make this better? He's like, no, not necessarily. I don't like it. I get moon face. I get all the secondary, you know, bad things that can happen with steroids. All those side effects nobody likes to deal with. He's like, I cannot stand the swelling. Okay. Okay, I got it. How many days do they want you to do? Ten. Well, then we got, we got down to, they want to do ten. Well, maybe they want to do five. Are we going to do high dose and do a week? Like, this went on and on and on for, like, 45 minutes to an hour. And lo and behold, here comes the pediatric pulmonary team with every pediatric resident behind them, who I know all of them at this point, that they all, you know, 20-something out of them managed to crowd into this room around us. That's what they do. And I actually stood up to leave. John and his physician, Dr. Kenny, both looked at me and said, don't go anywhere. Sit back down. Right now. And I had a couple residents staring at me with their mouths open because they didn't get it. And John and Dr. Koenig start to have this debate on steroids. Are they going to do it? How many days? Well, if he gives in the... Here we go. I mean, this was like... I thought they both needed attorneys at some point because I was just like... <laughs> Pretty to call your lawyer. Yeah, and, and these residents are just going back and forth with big, huge eyes bugging out of their heads, their mouth hanging open because I don't know if they just couldn't believe that a patient wasn't going to do what a doctor wanted right off the bat. Or the debate was lasting this long. The debate was lasting this long, or somehow I was, yeah, or somehow I'm sitting next to John, but I, I just couldn't even tell you how many thoughts probably were going through all of those heads at that I'm time. I'm very confused. And 
yeah, lots of confusion, I'm sure, on their part. And I remember finally at the end of it, John staring at me, Dr. Koenig staring at me, and all these residents staring at me. And I finally looked at them and said, oh, you didn't realize Chronic and Chronic were best friends, did you? <laughs> and I'm like, what? I'm not, not weighing in on this. John's like, we just talked about this for 45 minutes. What are we... Wow. Once again, how did I, I felt like I had to be the tiebreaker? <laughs> and, I think that's what he was. I mean, he, I mean, and it was just that whole. Now, did John come from a different state, or and he was at Mizzou for what? Like, what was he doing at Mizzou? Was he just a regular patient? Yeah, he was a regular patient there. Because so both of us, my pediatric endocrinologist and his pediatric pulmonologist, were both at Mizzou. We had okay. both grown up seeing our specialists there. So you just happened through a web of friends. Yeah, to came, meet. Okay, I just meet. wanted to clarify because it kind of made it like he was going to school, but then yeah, no, actually he wasn't. So he was a no. patient that you met through a web of friends. Yeah, okay. through through yeah, a group of friends, a Got group it. of mutual friends, spider web of friends, spider web of friends, right? In okay. Um, this moment still to this day stands out to me so much because first off, the level of debate was so intense. I'm still shocked that they're still talking about this. Right. Like, it, this seems like half a day to talk about steroids. Right. Why was he so against just because he had all the secondary? He didn't. Yeah, and he didn't like how he felt on him. Okay. Didn't like it. So it didn't make him feel better. It just... No, he, he was like... His, he just... It, it didn't matter if it made breathing easier for him in a day. It didn't matter if it was true. The side he's effects like, were too great. Yeah, and okay. at the same time, he's like, these providers are going to put me on steroids and leave me on them forever. Because yeah. lots of CFers did long, long-term yeah. doses of steroids way back in the day like that. Right. Um, to essentially, I guess, some doctors used to say, you know, think of prednisone as like the vacuum cleaner for your lungs and to clean that out. Well, I'm sorry, there's no CFer that ever got their lungs really cleaned out, let's be honest. Yeah, they just kind of... I mean, they'll, they'll bronch you so many times and suck out so much stuff, but right. it's just how that disease works. So, right. so at the end, did he take it or not? Yeah. Yeah, he he did. He agreed to a few days. The whole crew left. And I looked at him and I said, really, that was how long, this was how long of a debate we were having over this? And he said, you know what, though? If I don't stand up for how I feel and what I want and what works for me, they're going to do whatever. They're going to keep doing whatever they want that fits the textbook that tells them to do this. Very wise. I, I go, totally agree. It is. And he goes, and so many people just do things because they're told to. Or they don't question it. They yeah, just they feel, don't question it. They just feel... they got a white feel, and a stethoscope. They're going to do it. Yeah. But sometimes you have to question. Not yeah. everything, but sometimes you Not everything, no, but question. sometimes you have to question. And I feel like in chronic illness world... You should know what you're getting into. You should know what you're getting into, and maybe you should question a little more to remain successful. Yeah. That was kind of this first big moment where I started to go, huh. Because um, we started to talk about differences we saw in kids walking around the hospital that were younger than us but had the same diagnosis and going, well, that wasn't an option when we were younger. Right. Why do you get to do that? It's medicine changes. Why do you need to, you know, and is it really the evolution of medicine and doing what's better or are we just doing what's easier? Right. Right. So these debates start. And John and I together, you know, it really starts to shed the light on how a lot of my career kind of started, I would say. Um, because I start, I knew right off the bat, being somebody with a chronic illness, I knew right off the bat going into nursing school, there would be things that I would perceive differently, I would feel differently about. Um, 
there were some things I could accept easier and sometimes not accept in an easier way because I had to live with a chronic illness. And so I get accepted to nursing school. I go to nursing school. I take my first job in the pediatric ICU. Um, I got to take care of lots and lots of kids with different illnesses, genetic syndromes. Um, and a lot of times you see the worst of the worst sitting in the ICU. Now, a lot of people say, why did you decide to do that? How can you do that? Honestly, to this day, I still don't have a good answer for that. The one thing I will say that I think any PICU nurse will tell you is the good always outweighs the bad. And at the same time, I went into pediatrics because I'm like, you know what? Kids are actually way more honest than adults are. And pretty much anything that happens to kids isn't their fault, and they didn't ask for it. Amen. Okay? Just saying. You know, a four-year-old doesn't get cancer because they've been smoking for 20 years. No. No. You know, they don't have a heart attack because they've had a horrible diet for 30 years and they're overweight. They don't have, you know, that's typically, you know, children are born with these genetic conditions or they develop early on in life and they get thrown into the hospital world where a lot of us spend a lot of time. And... You would see all these people in circumstances that they felt nobody else was going through, nobody else had experienced, um, and nobody else could even come close to this rare moment, so they can't relate to anybody. At the same time, these parents are living in hospital rooms, you know, cut off from the world. I mean, yes, we had the internet, but social media is not what it was. It was non-existent. It was like, um, Um, how much would you like to pay for that? little bit of time you're on the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could get some email. I mean, that was, but I mean, that was it. There wasn't any of these, you know, Facebook didn't even exist. There was Putt-Putt. There was Putt-Putt, and there was, sorry, that was random. I don't, I don't even know what Putt-Putt is. What? Was it that penguin game? No, what? it was a little car, a little purple car, and he got to drive around, and he did, like, Putt-Putt. He was no. Putt-Putt, no? No. Somebody's got to know what Putt-Putt was. Putt-Putt was the bomb diggy bomb. Okay, well, if somebody sure. knows what putt-putt is, just put that little little comment in below and let us know because I don't have a clue what she's you know, talking about. Seriously, I'm going to Google this. Sh- right? I cannot believe your parents did not let you no. play putt-putt. I don't know if it was I, internet-based. Maybe my parents told me it was the internet. <laughs> it's like here. That, that may have been it. Your parents <laughs> just told you that, and that wasn't, that wasn't the truth. This is the internet. That was not the truth. Not I the digress. truth. I'm going to find putt-putt for you. Right? We're going to have to. Um, so... <laughs> you have to water flowers. Yeah, the whole night, right? God, we're watering flowers now at the car. Oh, it Jesus. was so much fun. I love Papa. Oh God, maybe it's because I got to touch the computer. I don't know. Yeah, you know. But anywho, I mean, that's like literally what these families had. Like, and not that it's any different nowadays. But you know, you have a kid that's sick in the ICU, and you most parents don't leave. They don't want to leave. Well, if your kid's been in the ICU for three to four months, that's a heck of an existence. That is a heck of a sacrifice on a family and work and other obligations. And the the things add up and the stress adds up. And people get confined to this little hospital room and think there's nothing else outside of it. Now, at this point in time, 
I, you know, am seeing and taking care of kids with very rare forms of cancer, um, cancer that has taken over their body, kids that are close to end of life. And I start dealing with end of life in the pediatric population. Once again, a topic most people don't like to talk about. Not going to dwell on it here because literally that's like a whole podcast in and of itself. You know, hell, that could even be a few podcasts depending on what all aspects you want to talk about in relation to it. But once again, my views and opinions on things kind of started to not necessarily change, but really develop. And, you know, here I am in my early 20s and I'm starting to realize what matters to me in life isn't what necessarily matters to other people. And that everybody's different and that's okay. What matters to one person doesn't have to matter to another person, believe it or not. So I also started to get my own little views on taking care of patients and looking at, you know, some of the tests and studies and research that was being done that parents and their children would participate in. Um, I, for one, from the time I was diagnosed at the age of four all the way up through college, participated in research studies related to type 1 diabetes. Uh, my parents were very supportive of that growing up because, you know, if there was a way for some other kid or some other family to not have to go through this or help them in some way, you know, the least we could do was fill out a questionnaire or give blood or whatever yeah. they wanted. And so we always did that. Never a big deal. And I hadn't quite realized it at this time, but when trying to make advancements in medicine, things happen that sometimes seem very, very crazy. They probably seem more crazy to us nurses and healthcare providers working on the medical side than it seems to the parents who are just fighting to save a child or make their child's life better. And all of it has purpose. All of it has reason. Um, because if we don't try to make advancements, we're never going to get anywhere, no. right? No, we're going to be stuck. At the same time, when you look back to... Um, one of my all-time favorite books, King of Hearts, about the cardiothoracic surgeon that actually developed cardiopulmonary bypass. It's a short book. It's a quick read, but I tell you, it is one of the craziest stories I've ever read in my life because nobody knew how to do this, and he was determined to do this to save children with congenital heart disease. And we're, we're talking about him hooking up dogs to each other in a lab to see if one heart could pump enough for both of them to sustain them through a surgery that they could actually open a heart up. Well, then they decided, let's see if we can attach a kid to one of their parents with the same blood type and see if we can't get through that way. And just just the, the non-stop progress he had to make that was really scary as shit. Yeah, I mean, all even that to, sounds really scary to me. Even even in this day, it's still scary as shit it to read that. It sounds really scary. It sounds scary to, for even to hear it out because loud. his first, you know, his first patient died, and he had to go back and look at why did that happen when he was trying to keep a child from dying. Kids that nowadays we do these repairs easily, um, but somebody had to take the hell. First. Not, but somebody had to take the first step, and that first step was scary as shit. And, Sorry, and crazy. Here comes and the crazy. Cutscene. And crazy. It is crazy. And, it's absolutely mind blowing. And it was like, hey, let's see if this works. Just by kicks and just giggles. by chance, we're gonna just, see. Let's just see, see if this happens. I just want to see if we hook up A and B. If A can keep B alive. Yeah. While well, I open its heart. Let's just see. Just um, 
yeah, crazy considering that nowadays it is so commonly used every single day, nobody thinks anything about it for the most no. part. It's like, oh, we're going to open you up and we're going to... We're doing open-heart surgery. All right. All right. What? Nobody, nobody even questions that anymore. Nobody goes like, what? Oh, you're going to open me you up? You might not like the idea. That big ass. But you don't question it a whole lot because you just want your heart fixed. Because it's, you know, everybody goes, you know, there's a... Yeah, but some of these things, like, we fix in cath lab nowadays without even cracking a chest, which is a miracle in and of itself. Yes, there's but all kinds of different progressions. The point I'm getting at here is start taking care of kids and you start to participate in some new research and you start to do things and you turn around and you start looking at physicians and looking at yourself going, should we really have done that? Yeah. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. I, yeah. But maybe we should, but maybe we couldn't. But let's argue both sides of this, right? Like it becomes very conflicting. And at least when you're early on in your PICU nursing career and these things are just first starting to happen. And at the same time, you know, I'm sitting there a nurse who's a type 1 diabetic going, huh, maybe I would do this, maybe I wouldn't. And I started to realize then, in life, you have to decide if you're a quality or a quantity person. You may not openly have that conversation. Most people don't even know how to openly have that conversation. But you need to decide, do you want more quality to your life or do you want more quantity to your life? And that's, once again, there's no right or wrong answer to that. But everybody has to make their own decision. Yes. And this is really starting to come around to me now. Now, um, at this point in time, I'm still doing injections every day, doing six a day. Um, you know, still testing your blood sugar. There's no such thing as a continuous glucose monitor. Um, I had no interest in being in an insulin pump. Um, but I had also started to become sick. I guess that's the easiest way to put that. Yes. Didn't have anything to do with my diabetes. My diabetes was great, well controlled. I mean, my God, at this point in life, um, I've had it for 30 years. I have no complications, no nothing. But I'm starting to get sick. I'm getting sick a lot. Like, to the point, I feel like it's mostly stomach-related, but something's not right. I want to sleep a lot, a whole, whole lot. Um, I feel bloated all the time. My stomach hurts. Um, and I just have a feeling something's wrong. And at the same time, I'm kind of like, maybe I'm not working out enough. Maybe I'm eating horribly. Maybe I need to change my diet. So I start to work on changing these things, seeing if I can't make this better. And I finally go to see my first gastroenterologist and loved her to death. Got started on some medicine, making some things better, but still things weren't quite right. I'm about a year into my... Um, nursing career. I've completed my bachelor's. I have my RN and I decide I'm going to go get my master's so I can be a nurse practitioner. And at the same time, I'm going to move to St. Louis and take a different job at a different PICU slash cardiac ICU. And it was great. And I made the move to St. Louis, um, in the summer of 2006. St. Louis. I know. Lovely St. Louis here. And, um, oh, sorry. I, you know, eventually, you know, moved out of Columbia, moved to St. Louis. And at the time, my friend John was getting sicker as well. Um, John's father ends up dying um, from a heart attack, essentially heart failure. 
and I just had a feeling once his dad passed away, things were not going to go well with him. And so I come to St. Louis. He and I had had a long talk about his health. Did he need anything? No. And at the same time, the pulmonary crew at Mizzou is telling him, you need to go to St. Louis for your medical care. You're old enough now. Things are looking like this. You need to go. And the one thing John had always talked about, we talked about it a lot, was he did not want a lung transplant. And to people who don't know anything about how transplants work, first off, it's absolutely different with every organ. Let me start off with that. But when we're talking about a lung transplant, especially in somebody with cystic fibrosis, this is not a cure-all. It doesn't make that disease go away. Um, but John eventually agreed to go just to be worked up by their adult CF team to see what they had to say and what they had to offer. So off I go to St. Louis to work. John is preparing to come to St. Louis to see the adult CF team. And um, he ends up getting hospitalized at Barnes when he goes to see this team because they decide he's in that bad of shape. He was already getting a little sick. Things were already not going real well. And so he gets admitted down at Barnes. And I call him. Or he called me, can you remember one night, and he's like, oh, yeah, they admitted me. They want to do some tests. They want to do this, blah, 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 blah. And he said they want to do a cardiac cath. And I go, what do you mean they want to do a cardiac cath? They only do that if you're talking about lung transplant. And he goes, I'm not agreeing to it, but I am agreeing to be worked up. They're telling me if I wanted lungs, I'd be on the top of the list. I go, yeah, 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 I get that. Are you changing your mind? Do you want to be transplanted? I said, I'll support you either way, 100%. He goes, Nope, but, you know, he's like, let's face it, I've had this a long time. I've been sick again pretty frequently. Um, things aren't going like they normally are, so I'm going to go ahead and do this and see what they say. Okay, right? He's like, it's what I came down here for. Let's see what they got. Okay. So um, I start working in the pediatric cardiac ICU and the pediatric ICU. Um, here in St. Louis, and I'm seeing really, really sick kids, kids with really rare diseases, illnesses, you name it, and start to get a ton more experience. Um, I start working on my master's, and um, really loving it, loving all the experience, and loving what I'm doing, and the people I work with, and um, John went and did a cardiac cath. Nothing that was that horribly remarkable about it. Of course, they didn't like some pressures, and I didn't think they would, but he ends up going back home and coming back to Barnes. And we start to talk more about lung transplantation, and does he want this? Is this what he's going to do? He goes, well, I don't know. He's like, I could always be listed, and I don't have to accept when they call. Because you don't have to. Right? You don't have to accept when they call. And I really started to prepare myself for what if he decides to do this. Because it's big, it's huge, and it's, it's taking one chronic illness and trading it in for another one. Like I said, it's not a cure-all. It's not a fix. Not saying that transplant isn't a great thing. It is a great and wonderful thing for so many people, and I highly encourage everybody to be a donor. But there's also the reality side of it for those with cystic fibrosis. 
um, it's not easy. We were transplanting kids with CF um, all the time at the hospital because we were one of, I think, three pediatric lung transplantation programs in the country. We're right smack dab in the middle of the country, so everybody was coming to us, and I saw these kids go through surgery. I saw how rough it was. I saw what their recovery was. The bigger thing was I saw what their life expectancy was and what it was like after they were transplanted, and there's a lot of it that's not pretty. It's not glamorous, um, and a lot of them passed away within, you know, the first one to two years after transplantation. So I'm still preparing myself for him doing this. I'm thinking, hey, he might. Kind of starting to talk like that. And next thing I know, he's hospitalized again. They have taken him for, I don't remember, okay, that's, I'm going to be real honest here. I don't remember if they were scoping John. I think they were. They were scoping his intestines to make sure he didn't have blockage or anything, and something happened. Something went wrong, and John ended up in the ICU intubated. He was really, really sick. Things were not looking good. Um, his aunt called me and said, this is the point we're at. Um, his sister is trying to decide whether or not to trach him. I said, for the love of God, if you trach him, he's going to be pissed off as hell. He's going to be so damn mad because it's not what he wants. She goes, yeah, but should we do it if it gets him better? I go, well, maybe I just hate the idea of it. He's going to hate the idea of it, but maybe if he hates it enough, he'll wake up and finally talk to us. Like, maybe that'll just push him over the edge enough. He'll get his act back together here. And that happened. His sister elected to trach him in hopes that we could get him to rehab and get him better and get him to wake up. And the truth of it was that never happened. That's not how it went. And... um John passed away on Christmas Day. Because in true John fashion, believe it or not, like everybody in his family, both of his parents, everybody had like died on a holiday. And I always just said, you know, John being his honorary self, he had to one-up everybody, so he just took Christmas for the... Um, that was rough. Yeah. I had lost another friend to cancer when I was much younger, She's still very close to me, but losing John to CF, and especially in the way it happened, was rough. So sudden. It's not what I was ready for ever. No. And I knew it was a possibility. I knew that's what could happen. I knew from the get-go, but it didn't matter. didn't matter. I wasn't ready for it. Then it happened. I have always thought I was one to live life without regrets, and then I regretted because I didn't get to see him in the last couple days when he was awake. I didn't get to do that. And to go through that whole process then in your 20s, to lose someone who's not only used to the everyday chronic illness battles that you are, even though they're not the same, to lose that person that, as I said, he was my rock because we could keep each other grounded when we really wanted to lose our shit. And was 
a hard moment and at the same time it still helped to shape me and get me to the point where I'm at now. Because the one thing I can say is John got to live his life the way he wanted to. I am still getting to live my life the way I want to despite what illnesses we have. And then getting to take that and have that tie into my work to be able to look at people and say, you know, it might not be easy. It may be worth it. It may not. It may be. But if you feel like you need to do it, then do it. If you feel like you don't need to do it, don't do it. And starting to have more and more of those feelings and starting to be able to put more and more of that into my own practice um, was huge. And... I still to this day can think back a lot on several conversations we've had and points that we made about why we felt the way we did. We would have very strong opinions about our medical care, what physicians wanted to do. And at the same time, now I look back and realize we were advocates, not just for ourselves, for each other, but for other kids that were coming up with the same illness as we had because we didn't want them to go through anything they didn't have to. We didn't want anybody to view any of us as weak just because we had this. That's not, not the point of it. But he really helped to influence this huge part of my career. Now, this time, you know, I'm getting my master's. I eventually get my pediatric nurse practitioner. Um, I go on to do some medical mission trips in some developing countries, um, We'll have to have different podcasts. Change, <laughs> yeah, that's whole other topics I mean, in and of some, itself. Some um, of her trips are pretty awesome. Um, but then you know, I transitioned from being a bedside nurse to a nurse practitioner, um, and that was a totally different transition because all of a sudden you take on all this responsibility, and at the same time you're now more of a provider. Well, because you are a provider. You're not just the bedside nurse waiting for somebody to give you an order. You can actually give orders. And at the same time, you're still somebody standing there with a chronic illness going, yeah, I can relate to more of these families than what a lot of these other physicians can. And I was asked to speak one day at my hospital with a group of a few other employees that all of us had different chronic illnesses or disorders or different, whatever you want to call them, right? And... The point I made at this topic, as I'm sitting there with a friend of mine who is wheelchair-bound, she has CP from an anoxic brain injury at birth, but she has a master's degree just like I do, right? Um, That I look at the panel of us sitting up there and speaking to this room full of people, and I say, here's the thing you all don't realize when you don't have a chronic illness. First off, there's no such thing as normal. Normal's a drier setting at best. Let's be honest. Um, It is truly a word that is meant to have a general meaning for everything and everybody. And the truth of it is, everybody's normal is different. So normal technically doesn't exist. The second thing I said was, you know what? We don't all put our pants on the same way every morning. We don't have the same morning routine. I guarantee you what I get up and do first thing every morning is not what each one of you do every morning. And I guarantee you the person sitting next to you doesn't get up at the same time, doesn't have the same routine, and you know what? It's okay because we're all still getting up and doing what we need to do. Sometimes my pants are backwards. Right? See? (laughs) Um, Sometimes pants are just backwards. Sometimes you just don't need to wear pants. But In Kevin's world. In Kevin's world, yeah. Anywho. um, And... uh, 
people really responded to that. And this friend of mine sitting next to me started laughing. She goes, you're absolutely right. Guarantee you, all of us up here don't put our pants on the same way every single day. And I'm like, you know, that's the thing. You might be getting up and brushing your teeth, and I might be checking my blood sugar. And you might be um, taking your first round of medication before you eat, because you've got to get it in before you get food in. And maybe, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I'm like, so the biggest lesson from that was quit trying to shove everybody into the same box. We don't all live in the same box. We all live outside of the box. And I really started to get into, especially with all these kids I'm taking care of, all these experiences, is how do we take kids and families who are being forced to live outside the box and let them realize it's their normal, just like everybody else's? And that seems like a really confusing thing to do. Um, but that's what I really started to work on and speak on and work with families on. And, you know, at this point, I'm, what, 13 years, 14 years in my nursing career, something like that. Dear Lord, it's been a while. But people have kept in touch. People have kept track thanks to social media nowadays, which has really become an awesome tool that I'm now trying to use because all of you have encouraged me to do this and asked me to do this. And um, there's our little Liz in the background, more of our supportive supportive children. She is so crazy about she's, her Katie mom. She's, she's, she, wants to, she wants to be in on this. Um, so, anywho, I go through my first couple of nurse practitioner jobs trying to find what I like. And I end up doing pediatric, palliative, and chronic care at another hospital in St. Louis with a wonderful physician um, named Mary Beth Chismerich. And we start off with a wonderful pairing. Um focusing on how to take care of patients in the medical world that, let's be honest, no other medical provider wants to take care of. And um, trying to give, like I said, all of these kids whose life is so far outside of the box that everybody tries to fit into, that making them and their families realize they can go on and have a life every day just like everybody else does and that might mean that things are done differently and not the way everybody else does but it can still get done and it can still happen and I started to be known as and I probably self-labeled myself this because I would say to parents all the time especially when I talk to parents of children in the NICU that have these babies that are just born that aren't the perfectly healthy children they were thinking they were going to get and being able to look at them and say, I'm the constant yes man. Like, literally, I said yes to everything. I'll tell you how to do something if you don't know how to do it. You might not like how I tell you to do it. It might be a lot of work and a lot of effort. But I'll tell you how to do it. And, you know, in trying to take a chronic illness and look at it, and especially for our family, realizing how much of your life is going to change, how much of your routine is going to change, Things you have now never had to think of in your life, you're now having to consider multiple times in a day. And maybe you weren't a long-term planner. Now you've got to be this really detailed long-term planner. You've really got to have your ducks in a row. And being able to take some of that burden and that pressure off to say, I know this is rough and I know this is hard now. The goal is to get you into your own routine that works for you and your family. That's always the goal, and there's always a way to make it happen. 
So with that being said, you know, my chronic illness kids went on vacation with their families. They still do. Sometimes we got to think of some extra things. Sometimes I have to think about how to put kids onto airplanes that don't easily fit onto an airplane. Sometimes you got to think about how to get medicines on trips or if you just want to go camping with your kid that's got a G-tube that has to be tube-fed, can you do it? If so, how do you do it? Um, and I have the lovely father of a dear patient of mine that actually, I think, quizzed me for an hour one day trying to give me any scenario he could, wanting me to say, no, you can't do that. And I never did. He's like, you've got some pretty good ideas about how to make this happen. I said, there's always a way. And if I ever say no to something, it's because it's a legitimate hard no. There's no exception. There's no, and I... Katie's Dory. Yeah, like, I still, to this um, day, can't think of anything I said no to right off the bat. I don't even know that I said no to anything, quite frankly. But... Um, I really really made that my thing like that's my passion and my love to take experiences from my own life whether it be my work life my personal life my diabetic life um tie it all into one and be able to sit down and talk with other people because I don't care what age you are right it's not all about kids even though I talk with a lot of kids a lot of the time but even parents of, spouses of, friends of, co-workers of, just to talk and give knowledge or advice where I've lived through it before. So somebody else might have a little bit of, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's a little more insight, a little more of a heads up so it's not such a surprise, right? Like just trying not to catch people off guard. Um, and at the same time, a very dear patient of mine who's now an adult had even said to me, you know, the days where I feel like everything's out of control and I'm so upset I can't quit crying and I can't stop having, you know, just feeling miserable and upset about everything, she said, you can always talk me off the ledge. And I said, well, what ledge is that? Because in the chronic illness world, there's a whole lot of ledges you can be on, let's be honest. And she said, you can at least calm me back down. I at least feel like you know how I feel. Um, because you can have the best family support in the world. You can have thousands of people pulling for you and supporting you and telling them that they love you and they're here for you no matter what. And she said, and you can feel so alone, it's overwhelming. I go, yeah, I get that. When somebody isn't going through the exact same thing as you because they don't have the exact same diagnosis, even though there are 10,000 people behind you saying, I love you, I'm here for you, I support you, and you know you have a good support system, you can feel like there's nobody on earth. And that's a really rough feeling. The biggest thing and the whole reason it came down to this, a podcast, and starting Diabionic... Um, was because people started to ask for me to speak at more things, um, to be able to get to talk to more than one person at a time. And so people could go back and listen whenever they wanted to listen. Right? Like you're just one of those people that you can sit and talk to for hours, but like you can relate to these people. Yeah. You can relate to any kind of illness. You have that patient, that well, genuine... Yeah feeling that you legitimately care about somebody. 
Yeah, and I do. Because I'm a firm believer. First off, nobody's alone. Second off, no matter what the situation is, there's always somebody at least comparable. I won't even say the same thing, but I will say comparable or somebody that you can relate to um, that can make you feel a little more whole and bring you kind of back to center, right? So that's what all these podcasts are about. I want everybody to send me their questions, their... um, Oh my gosh, I'm coming up on the end of an hour. Yep. Um, 